0: This is an RNZ
1: podcast. The Pacific Ocean is really, really big. Ginormous. It's so huge, you could drop every piece of land on Earth inside it and still have some room around the edges. About 5,000 years ago, a group of people set out to explore this ocean.
0: We only have glimpses of how and why, but over generations, these people and their descendants explored virtually every corner, settling on the islands and creating their own unique cultures based on the local conditions. The final islands they discovered are the ones we call home today, Aotearoa, New Zealand. Adapting to life in Aotearoa might have been the biggest challenge those people had ever faced. And today, we're going to look at how they did it.
1: Core William Ray tenei.
0: Ko Lee Marma McLaughlin tine. Welcome to the Aotearoa History Show.
1: We arrange ourselves without fear. besides Britain. Where she goes, we go. Where she stands, we stand. The New Zealanders. Hillary has succeeded in conquering Mount Everest. New Zealand is in front. New Zealand wins one. It's a real shambles here at Rugby Park Hamilton. Red smoke
0: bombs being thrown
1: by the demonstrators. We are marching to
0: This story starts about 5,000 years ago. Somewhere on the coast of Southeast Asia, a group of people left their homes and started travelling across the sea. These were the ancestors of the Polynesian people. We don't know for sure why they started these voyages. Maybe they were trying to escape famine or war. Maybe they just wanted to see what was beyond the horizon.
1: At first, these were short trips, using rafts or small canoes to reach nearby islands like Taiwan, Indonesia, the Philippines, Papua New Guinea and the Solomon Islands. Many of these islands already had people living on them, the ancestors of modern-day Melanesian people. For a few thousand years, the proto-Polynesians travelled all around those islands, exploring, trading, forming relationships with the local indigenous people. Somewhere around this time though, they invented a revolutionary new technology, the ocean-going waka. This technology probably evolved in several stages. First, you got your basic waka. Then you add an outrigger, which makes it more stable. Then you go double-hulled, which adds even more stability. And finally, you add a sail, so you don't have to paddle anymore.
0: Ocean-going waka allowed early Polynesians to make much longer voyages, and they developed all kinds of techniques to navigate across the open ocean and detect the tiny specks of land scattered across it. Over hundreds of years, they explored all the way from Hawaii in the north to Rapa Nui in the east. Some researchers think they might have even made it as far as South America. Every group of Polynesians who settled on one of these islands went on to develop their own distinct culture – But you can still see their shared roots, similar styles of artwork, similar legends and language.
1: Aotearoa was the last group of islands to be discovered by Polynesians. Actually, it was the last major landmass anywhere in the world to be inhabited by humans. Our best guess is this probably started around 1280 or 90, maybe the early 1300s. That's based on a combination of climate data, radiocarbon dating and oral histories. One theory is that the voyage to Aotearoa was kicked off by a gigantic volcanic eruption in Indonesia in 1257, which cooled the entire globe and caused crop failures all over the Pacific. This theory has some support in Maori oral histories. Many iwi say their ancestors were forced to leave their home islands by increasing warfare. Maybe people were fighting over a limited food supply.
0: According to one tradition, New Zealand was discovered by the great explorer Kupe and his wife Parangi. Their waka was chasing Wekea muturangi, a giant octopus who had been stealing their fish. But in the middle of this chase, they stumbled across a giant island. Parangi named it Aotearoa after the long white cloud she saw hanging over the land. This is one of many traditions about discovery and naming, and these traditions have changed over time. For example, the word Aotearoa probably originally only referred to the North Island, but the name is now expanded to include all the islands of New Zealand.
1: There were probably several waves of migration to Aotearoa, somewhere between 12 or 25 waka carrying at least 150 people in total. Māori oral traditions refer to fleets of waka coming to Aotearoa from a place called Hawaii.
0: Hawaii is deeply significant to Māori. It's often talked about as a spiritual as well as a physical place. In many traditions, it's the place where people come from before they're born and where they go after they die. Researchers have been debating for a very long time about which island or islands Hawaii refers to, but they now mostly agree that the first Polynesian migrants probably came from several different islands around modern-day Tahiti and Rarotonga. This is based on stuff like language analysis, climate studies and DNA sequencing. It's also backed up by fragments of oral histories. For example, there's a very old wakatoki which says... Ekure ngaro kaka no mai I shall never be lost, for I am a seed scattered from rangiatia. Now, rangiatia is the Māori name for Ra'iatia, an island near Tahiti. So that might be one of the islands Māori refer to as Hawaii.
1: Some oral traditions suggest Polynesians made round trips from Aotearoa back home to Hawaii, but no archaeological evidence has been found to support this. Researchers like Athel Anderson think the prevailing winds would have made it extremely difficult to sail back to eastern Polynesia from Aotearoa. As far as we know, the people who arrived here were stuck for good.
0: Māori eventually abandoned long-distance sailing. One of the final voyages was a small group of people who sailed from mainland New Zealand to settle in Rekohu, the Chatham Islands.
1: These people called themselves Moriori, and they developed a unique culture based on the local environment. It was too cold to grow crops, so instead they relied almost entirely on kaimoana for food. There wasn't much good timber or stone for carving, so instead they created rakau mōmori, carvings in living trees.
0: Around the year 1500, a prominent Moriori chief, Nunuku Wenua, ended inter-tribal conflict among the Moriori, and he outlawed killing, warfare, and cannibalism. From that point on, the Moriori became strictly pacifists. These days, there's a lot of myth-making and misunderstanding about the Moriori people. In the 19th century, a few European ethnologists came up with the theory that Moriori were the first people to reach Aotearoa. These ethnologists suggested that when Māori arrived, they conquered the Moriori, and that the people who lived in the Chatham Islands were the only survivors.
1: This theory was partly based on old ideas about racial hierarchies. Moriori were considered inferior to Māori in the same way that Māori were supposedly inferior to Europeans. The theory also helped Pākehā feel more comfortable about their own colonisation of New Zealand. Because, you know, after all, if Māori conquered the Moriori, then it's okay for Pākehā to conquer the Māori.
0: Sure. So, it's not surprising this Moriori myth was very popular. It was taught in schools for most of the 20th century. A lot of people still believe it today.
1: But it's not true. It was first debunked by academics way back in the 1920s. All the evidence we've found shows Māori and Moriori both descend from the same original Polynesians who discovered Aotearoa. There's skeletal evidence, language analysis, DNA evidence...
0: Where the story sometimes gets confusing is that there really was a violent attack on the moriori by Māori, but this attack actually happened relatively recently, not hundreds of years in the past. In 1835, members of two iwi, Ngāti Mutunga and Ngāti Tama, sailed to Rekohu, and they killed and enslaved and tortured hundreds of moriori there.
1: But again, just to be super clear, Moriori were not the original people of New Zealand. They were part of the same migration which brought Māori here. They just carried on that migration one step further and created a different way of life.
0: So we're all on the same page? Are we ready to move on? Yep, yeah, let's go. For early Polynesian explorers arriving in Aotearoa would have been buzzy. For one thing, it was huge. New Zealand is 10 times bigger than all the other islands of Polynesia combined. And this land was full of stuff Polynesians had never seen before. We're talking snow-covered mountains, bubbling mud pools, enormous trees and gigantic birds.
1: But the biggest difference was the climate. New Zealand was much colder than any place they'd lived before. Polynesians bought crops with them from the Pacific, taro, paper mulberry and kumara. It took a lot of experimentation to keep those tropical plants alive through a New Zealand winter.
0: Luckily, they didn't need those crops to avoid starving. Aotearoa was jam-packed with kai. The forests were full of flightless birds which had no experience dealing with predators on land. Archaeologists have found the rubbish dumps of early Maori and they're overflowing with bones of flightless birds, particularly moor bones. Moor was central to the lives of Maori for more than a hundred years. They ate them, their bones were carved into fish hooks and ornaments, their feathers were woven into cloaks to protect against the cold.
1: The word moor is actually the same word Maori originally used for chicken. But there's a big difference between a moor and a chicken, and I'm not just talking about their size. Your average chicken can lay up to 300 eggs a year. So you can kill and eat a lot of chickens, and the population will bounce back pretty quickly.
0: But you can't do the same thing to moor. Moor only laid one or two eggs a year. This made them really vulnerable to extinction, and Māori don't seem to have realised this until it was too late. Within a few hundred years of humans arriving in Aotearoa, 32 species of bird were driven to extinction, including all nine species of moa, plus several other large flightless birds like the adspil, the native New Zealand goose and pelican.
1: This wasn't just down to hunting. The extinctions were also driven by introduced rats and dogs, which ate the bird's eggs. Archaeologists and geologists have found layers of ash, which we mentioned at the end of last episode, That suggests huge fires ripped through New Zealand's bush around this time. They were probably deliberately lit to flush the last few birds out of hiding.
0: These extinctions left a lasting impression on Māori. 300 years later, when Europeans arrived in Aotearoa, Māori still had a wakatauki mourning the loss of the moor kua pērā i te ngaro o te moa Gone as the moa is gone From the 1500s on, Māori had to find different sources of kai. They focused less on hunting birds and more on agriculture and kaimoana there was more emphasis on kai the sustainable management of natural resources. There was also an increase in warfare as people fought over the best sources of kai.
1: Before this point, Māori had mostly lived in small camps and these only lasted until the local food sources were exhausted and people had to move on. But now they needed larger, more permanent settlements so they could stick close to their crops and defend them from outsiders. This is the point where Māori started building Pa Fortified areas which people could retreat to if they were attacked. Or at least that's what happened in the North Island. Most of the South Island was too cold for growing crops, so tribes down south had to keep moving, harvesting seasonal sources of kai.
0: Over time, Māori developed oral traditions, legends and stories which reinforced connections to the land which sustained the tribe. Often these traditions referred back to the arrival of their tūpuna in Aotearoa. For example, here's the story of what happened when the waka te Aroa arrived in the Bay of Plenty.
1: Tamate Kapua, her captain, sprang up and pointed to the headland which juts out into the sea at Makatu and said, that point there is the bridge of my nose. It said that by claiming the land to be a part of his body, he made it sacred. And that claim was recognised by everyone on board.
0: Connections to land and ancestry were also encoded in visual art forms. These patterns were carved into wood or pounamu, or even directly into the skin through tamoko.
1: Over time, Māori developed their own traditions and way of doing things which was different from their Polynesian ancestors'. That stuff's really important for understanding Māori history from this point on, so it's time for a super quick tikanga Māori crash course. Crash
0: course! Okay, so the basic unit of Māori life is the Wano, the family group.
1: Then there's the hapū, the tribe. This was a network of families who usually all lived together in the same village.
0: Finally, there's the iwi. This is a confederation of hapū who all descend from the same waka or foundational ancestor. These connections told Maori who they were and where they'd come from, who they could reach out to for help, both in peace and wartime.
1: Within Maori society, there were divisions based on class. At the bottom level were the slaves, torekerekere. These were enemies captured in battle who were forced to work for their captors, but they weren't bought or sold like in the Roman Empire or in plantations in the southern United States. Plus, the children of slaves could sometimes rise to become full members of the hapū.
0: Above the Kareka were the tūtua or ware, the common people, and then at the very top were the rangatira, the chiefs. It's tempting to think of rangatira like kings or lords because their titles were passed on from parent to child, but it was more democratic than that. Rangatira had to consult with their people about important decisions and usually they respected the will of the majority.
1: Alongside the other three classes were the tohunga, the expert class, These people were like living spiritual libraries. They passed down the iwi's accumulated knowledge, tribal history and whakapapa, where to fish or hunt, how to carve a whorinui, how to heal illness, and how to deal with supernatural forces.
0: Day-to-day life was built around interlocking spiritual and cultural concepts. There are lots of these concepts, but we're going to focus on three of the major ones. Mana, tapu, and utu. First, let's talk about mana. Okay. Mana is partly related to your status. It can be inherited from your ancestors and enhanced by the way you act in life. Say if you were a great warrior or a skilled weaver, that would increase your mana. But if you were lazy or rude or just generally a bit useless, that would degrade your mana.
1: Mana also means authority or respect. There are stories of rangatira who had so much mana they could scare their enemies into running away even if they were outnumbered 10 to one.
0: Next, we have tapu. You could translate this as sacred or forbidden. Violating tapu risks offending the gods and they could make you sick or even kill you. Finally, there's utu. Utu is the principle of balance or getting even. Basically speaking, if someone gives you a gift, utu demands you give them a gift in return. Or if someone attacks you, utu demands you settle the
1: score. Utu, tapu and mana were important for day-to-day life. Mana helped maintain social bonds. It encouraged you to work harmoniously to increase your personal mana and the shared mana of the tribe.
0: Tapu was there to protect people from supernatural forces And from practical stuff, like it's tapu to sit on a table, but that's also to do with hygiene and keeping our kai away from our butts. Hitting heads is tapu because your head is sacred and it has your brain in it, you know. Uh, you got rahui, when someone dies in the river, is a form of tapu, so people don't eat fish or eel that have been feeding on human remains.
1: Gross. Finally, utu encourage you to pay your debts.
0: However... (laughs) Māori society wasn't a perfect utopia. Oral traditions of Māori warfare can be pretty horrific. Defeated enemies were often eaten, not because people were hungry, but as a way of absorbing their mana.
1: But that doesn't make Māori culture unusually barbaric or evil. Every culture has skeletons in its closet.
0: Also, we should be careful about seeing Māori as all the same. Māori have a lot of shared heritage, but iwi also have distinct cultures and traditions. Different styles of carving, different legends, and local dialects of te reo Māori. Like, you might notice me saying words like "wano" and whakapapa when it's normally said as "fano" and whakapapa. I'm not saying it wrong, that's just my local dialect from Whanganui.
1: Maori spent about five hundred years developing ways of living in this finua. There was trading, warfare, alliance, betrayal, feasting, famine, natural disasters, migration, discovery. The population grew from a few hundred original settlers to around eighty or a hundred thousand. Some estimates have put the number as high as two hundred thousand. Most people lived in the northern parts of the North Island, where it was warmer and easier to grow crops. By modern standards, your average Māori had a pretty hard life. Many people suffered arthritis from paddling waka and carrying heavy loads on their backs. They often developed serious dental problems because their food was full of grit and tough fibres. The average life expectancy was about 28 to 30 years. That might sound short, but it's actually similar to most Europeans until modern medicine got started in the 1800s.
0: 500 years after arriving in Aotearoa, New Zealand's largest land animals were gone, but the bush teemed with birds. The largest kahikatia tree reached 80 metres into the sky. The sea was full of fish. And up until this point in history, nobody in Aotearoa needed to use the word Māori to refer to themselves. The word Māori literally just means ordinary, and no one had ever met anybody who didn't meet that description.
1: but in the year 1642, Tangata Whenua saw something totally new. Somewhere near the northern tip of the South Island, billowing white sails appeared on the horizon. Māori were about to have their first encounter with Europeans, and that encounter was not going to end well.
0: But that's the story for the next episode.
1: The Aotearoa History Show is a 14-part series made possible by the RNZ New Zealand On Air Digital Innovation Fund. The executive producer is Tim Watkin. It's written and produced by William Ray and co-presented by Lee Marama McLaughlin. The sound engineer is William Saunders and it is directed by Duncan Smith. Historical fact-checking by Basil Keane and the Ministry of Culture and Heritage, especially David Green. Archival audio from Ngā Taonga Sound and Vision... A video version of the Aotearoa History Show is available online via the RNZ webpage or on YouTube.
0: Botox Cosmetic, Auto botulinum toxin A. FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you.